to Weird Comics History, where we bring you some weird comics history every week through the WeirdScienceDCComics.com podcast feed. That means if you're subscribed to WeirdScienceDCComics.com podcast on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or Google Play, then we should show up every Sunday morning. And if you're not subscribed, then you should subscribe. Absolutely. Uh, this week we got a uh, part one of a pretty interesting topic, I think, about um, a another comics company that doesn't get a lot of shine in the uh, collector circuit, or people don't really talk about it too much. Yeah, That's, the contemporary fandoms kind of turned a blind eye to it. it. It seems that way, and you know, there's a reason for that, because I'm just going to say it now up front, they weren't as good. Uh, they were sort of, had shitty paper, had, you know, kind of like... Beat up, poorly printed covers. The registration was all, was often way off, and uh, we're going to talk about why that was the case uh, today in the salacious story of Charlton Comics Part One. Mm-hmm. So, um, first, we're going to talk about the founders of Charlton Comics, uh, John Eric Santangelo Senior. You think that's right, Chris? Santangelo, yes. Santangelo, that sounds correct. Uh, he was born in 1899 in Italy. He died 1979 in probably in Connecticut. Probably. Uh, he was from Italy. He was an immigrant, and he moved to uh, originally Yonkers, I believe. Um, and he had a business, a construction business. He was a bricklayer, so he had a construction business, and uh, the, it was operating in White Plains. But they would do work throughout Westchester and probably Lower Connecticut. If people, if people don't know, Connecticut rubs right up against New York. Yeah, it's at, a tri-state area. At, exactly. So, so pretty much as you leave the Bronx, you're practically in Connecticut already. You have like another half hour to go. Yeah, you just cross the Long Island Sound. That's it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's the other way, too. You could take a ferry from uh, Setauket, I think, or Port Jefferson. Is that yep. what it is? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so it's, they're, they're, they're our neighbors over here in New York. Um, so he had this construction business, and you know he was very ambitious, and he decided to begin publishing some song lyrics in 1931. As the story goes, he met his future wife while doing a job in Connecticut. Uh, He would go to the Sons of Italy with the people he worked with after work to have a couple of beers, and she actually worked around the corner. And uh, she asked him if he could bring her some magazines of popular song lyrics of the day. So, you know, wanting to impress her, he went around, drove around Connecticut to find some, and he couldn't find any. Uh, I'm not clear whether they didn't exist or they sold out. I think they probably just sold out and didn't get reprinted. What, what do you think, Chris? You know, I, it's 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 such a sign of the times that there would be a magazine printing song lyrics. Uh, it, it's almost it's almost something you can't imagine there being, but at the same time, you can't imagine it not being there. Yeah, I mean, this so. obviously this obviously is <laughs> it has a market at the time. I'm this, sure this predates a lot of people even having record players. Uh, if you wanted to listen to music at home, you turned on the radio, or you played an instrument, and, and, you know, that was how you heard it. (laughs) So, uh, anyway, whatever the case, he couldn't find it, so he he went to ask somebody, found out how cheap it would be to make his own, and his wife, his future wife, typed up the lyrics, he printed these lyrics, and the rest is history. He was, he would drive around uh, Connecticut and, uh, you know, northern New York, uh, outside of New York City, and just distribute these things himself, bring them to the newsstands and stuff, and drop them off on consignment and come back a week later and pick up the money. Yep. By 1933, the sales of these magazines totaled 7 million copies. Amazing. I mean, hand-to-hand. That's pretty impressive. You know what it's I mean? Here's a guy who yep. <laughs> did it all by himself. 
So uh, Santiago and now his wife, they moved to Derby, Connecticut, which is a little nicer uh, area of Connecticut. And I wouldn't call it the toniest, but it's, it's sort of a nice uh, suburb. So in 1934, you know, obviously now he has uh, gotten the attention of the music industry and he was sued by the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers, otherwise known as ASCAP, for copyright infringement because he had not asked anyone if he could use their lyrics. Uh, mm-hmm. Or did he even really know probably that he had to? I mean, this that's, is, that's also up for an yeah. yeah, argument. I don't, yeah, I don't think he was, uh, you know, knew he was even committing a crime. He just figured it was a way to make a quick buck. So he was sentenced to a year and a day in prison at New Haven County Jail. Amazing. Now, now so far this sounds like a crime does not pay story, but that's not <laughs> the only comic book connection that we have here. Uh, at the same time, and I know much less, and uh, Chris also, I just found it hard to find out a ton about this guy, Ed Levy. Yeah. Uh, this is his partner. This, this becomes uh, John Santangelo Sr.'s partner uh, later on. But this is where they meet, in, in jail in 1934, uh, or maybe in 35, who knows exactly when it happened. But uh, he was a lawyer from Waterbury, Connecticut. He was serving time for some kind of graft. I, it was really yeah. unclear to me, because I kept finding conflicting information. A lot of it was hearsay, and I could find nothing official. Uh, I know he served on something akin to the city council in Waterbury, uh, I heard someone mention, or I read someone mention, illegal billing, and we're going to have a bibliography in our show notes, so you'll be able yeah. to look up our same references and see if you can uh, figure out what what exactly happened here. But I don't know. He was in jail. That's the point. Uh, That's it. <laughs> white collar crime. Yeah. So exactly. He it wasn't it wasn't for shooting a guy. It was some sort of white collar crime. Uh, and they hit it off, or at least they, you know, realized they had a business opportunity. So by 1935, yeah. they're both out, and Santangelo begins Hit Parader, uh, which would eventually become a magazine, Hit Parade, which you probably remember, too, when you were young. Do you remember that? Yeah, it's yeah. Like a heavy it metal sounds magazine. Sounds very familiar, yeah. Yeah, that, this is what it was. So, I mean, it originally started as legally licensed song lyrics, and it was Ed Levy, the lawyer, who helped him get the licensing. Yeah, and then in 1936, Santangelo learns about printing, and he purchases a purchases a printing plant in Waterbury. So buys a buys a whole printing plant. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1940, he and Levy, uh, I keep wanting to say Levy, <laughs> he and Levy enter <laughs> an arrangement. I, it might be Levy. I'm not sure. <laughs> it actually. might be. I don't know. Sure. Uh, they enter into an arrangement with ASCAP, and they open the uh, Two Charles Company, T W O Charles, which was named after uh, they they each happen to have a son named Charles, so yeah. they. Named it after them. I think they were the exact same age, too, right? And then they born the same year. That was also part I of the I want to say yes, yeah. yeah. Even if it's not true, they were they were named Charles. Yes, it, it makes a much better story that way. Sure. <laughs> now, the company purchases uh, 20 acres of land in Derby, which includes the, a 4,000-square-foot uh, location to house their printing operation. So they move that press from Waterbury to Derby. Um, over time, Hit Parade, it becomes more like a like a magazine, like you'd... you'd Recognize more photos, yeah, and uh, really, uh, you know, taking down the amount of uh, lyrics. I guess the, uh, I guess that just wasn't paying the bills anymore. It was just a sign of the times, perhaps. Yeah, I, I think it's possible that uh, they figured, why bother licensing lyrics when absolutely people, people it's a lot will buy the magazine with just a picture of Sinatra for free? You know, like, there you well, go. Why bother? But anyway, 
Sure, sure. That that definitely cuts on the overhead, and we're going to find out that they were really big on that. Yep. <laughs> now, uh, they, you know, in 1944, they turned their eyes to uh, the four-color world. They realized that the comics are they're growing. Uh, people are really digging it. And in in 44, they published their first comic, which was called Yellow Jacket, with uh, Yellow Jacket number one. That was September 1944. Uh, an odd aside here, uh, Roy Thomas liked that name Yellow Jacket so much, he swiped it. Sure, yeah. <laughs> it's no that's coming it. from him. That, <laughs> that's coming from him. That's yeah. not uh, pithy commentary. <laughs> he actually said he liked it and he took it. Um, now, they published under the Frank Com- Communal Publications in this year with Ed Levy as the publisher. They uh, explored the world of comics as uh, not not really as a passion. They weren't passionate for it. Just uh, this was we, we and we've talked about this in the past. They uh, they just wanted to keep those printing presses rolling 24 hours a day and bringing in the money. Yeah. And uh, an odd aside here, the printing presses they were originally made to print cereal boxes. Yeah. And it's <laughs> funny when you look at these old Charlton comics. There's a certain flatness to the ink. Yeah. Uh, Chris and I have talked about it, and we both, uh, when you see it, you know it, but it's hard you to explain. It. It's almost a waxiness to it. I can't, or a certain level of opacity that you don't It's, you almost, don't it's see. like a deadness almost. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and, and that's that's why. It's, it's, this, it's this weird printing press that was created to print on cardboard, I think, and, mm-hmm. and lay down a lot more ink than you need on a piece of pulp paper. On a piece but, of paper, yeah. yeah. They, I guess they tried to rejigger it, but it wasn't just... Uh, yeah, couldn't do it. Wasn't, it wasn't uh, enough, I suppose. Well, they, well they, uh, they probably told them, you know, you can make it perfect for another 500 bucks, and they were like, ah, this is fine. Yeah, this is good <laughs> enough for the kids. This is garbage anyway. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we have a quote from Paul Kupperberg, who, uh, who's, who was a creator there uh, during, I think, the 70s. Um, now, he says that Charlton was known for really, really being loose on uh, what the creators can do. You know, they didn't really care. And he was say, he said that uh, their laissez-faire attitude wasn't because they knew you'd get the best out of creative people if you leave them alone. It's because they just didn't care. Yeah, and, you know, that really is the hallmark, I think, of uh, Santangelo and Levy or Levy. Yeah. Uh, you know, they... They were businessmen. Hit parade. Yeah, they, 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 yeah. Were, they were in the business of making a profit. And hit parade and... They had, they eventually did puzzle books, and over time they did magazines of every stripe. They had Hot Rod magazines I saw, and mm-hmm. at one point they tried to do a Playboy ripoff that lasted two issues, and you know, teen magazines that came and went. Those were the bread and butter. Mag- yeah, they were really into like the zeitgeist of, uh, of what was going on on the newsstands. It seemed they tried to be at least, you know, boys. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and comics was just all part of that scheme to you know sure. milk, milk another couple of bucks out of this thing. So speaking of that, in 1945, they officially begin publishing comics under the name Charlton Comics. So this is now um, the beginning of you know the true Charlton Comics era. Mm-hmm. First comic book under Charlton is Zoo Funnies number one in December 1945. That was a funny animal book, and they actually did a bunch of different funny animal books. Uh, no way I even thought about listing them all. There was just a bunch of a ton. Yeah, a ton of them and a bunch of silly titles. Anyway. Uh, in 1946, they published Marvels of Science. That was March of the year for the cover date. And the printing press has moved to a newly constructed facility near ra- railroad tracks for, to facilitate distribution. Uh, it actually wasn't nationwide. It was just in the Northeast, and they subcontracted to, to distributors for the rest of the country. Gotcha. But throughout the Northeast, they you know, ran the show here. So it was uh, really the only company to be doing that at the time. National kind of had a deal with their distributor later. But uh, I think that none of them actually packed the boxes off the printing press, you know. 
Yeah. Right out of the comic shop. Uh, I mean, this is very early still. This is 1946. This is exactly real early. So, yeah, this is pretty amazing for the I time. I mean, new comics are 10 years old at this point. I was going to say Superman is 8. And Superman <laughs> is 8. So we're yeah. talking about a brand new, still industry. a brand new industry. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they, are, they have kind of invested in it in a way that a lot of other companies haven't. Mm-hmm. Um, during 1947 to 48, Charlton gets a binding line, then an engraver set up, which is actually quite expensive. The but both of them, none, none of this is cheap. I got news no. for you. Uh, and other equipment uh, to expand their manufacturing, uh, and then they set up several kind of shell companies for each division. But it all happens under the same roof in Derby, Connecticut. This is all in the same plant. So there was Charlton Press, was the actual printing, and I guess Charlton Publishing would be the publishing component of that. Uh, Capital Distribution Company was the distribution. Colonial Paper Company, now they were off-site, but they were nearby, and they supplied paper to Charlton, but they were set up as a subsidiary for Capital Distribution for some reason. Um, My suspicion is that they had sold paper to other companies, too, that Charlton didn't use enough paper to warrant its own mill. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I, I couldn't find out. Well, we're going to find out some in the second part. There, there's uh, going to be a bit about their uh, paper mill woes uh, oh, yeah, they from the some... Canadian mill. Oh, okay. Yeah. They, they, they did have to contract to another mill. Yeah. The paper game, it's a tough game, folks, let me tell you out there. It's not, a, it's not easy to secure large reams of paper like it used to be, as you might imagine. Mm-hmm. So, and also there was tops engraving. This would have handled the engraving of the plates and the color separations. Uh, in those days, this was actually a very manual process. Anybody who knows now, it pretty much is a computer carves out. Automated, yeah. Oh, it's all automated, yeah. It's, it's all done by a, a jet blast. You know what I'm talking about? Those the, uh, water blasts. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, this was the only unionized shop at Charlton, and they actually were some of the highest paid employees there for that reason, and uh, they kind of had a separate... Uh, Cafeteria, right? Did I read something like that? I like think they, so. They yeah. were sort of separate from everybody, uh, a little bit, somewhat, but they were accessible right there in the plant. Uh, something that um, employees took a lot of advantage of. Uh, Dick Giordano, who later on would become the executive editor of the comics line, uh, we'll get to that later. But he said, "Charlton's complete production facility and its low overhead gave them such a tremendous edge. They only." But they only published comic books to keep the presses running around the clocks. And he says that Charlton would wait for scrap metal prices to go up before disposing of engraving plates. So this is how unbelievably petty they are. That they would yes. rather take up space in their warehouse and essentially take up money there than, you know, do something yeah. with the space, reinvest and, you know, whatever. Maybe actually get a better printing press. But, you know, that never occurred to them, yeah. I have a feeling. I heard a I heard a quote during the during the research where they said that they would uh, they would throw a nickel like most people would throw a manhole cover. Oh yeah, because <laughs> <laughs> so, so it wouldn't go that far. That's hilarious. <laughs> now uh, between 1945 and 1950, they put out a few comics, mostly you know the kid stuff, probably more of that funny animal stuff. Mm. Um, and they formed out to, to a freelance editor and packager named Al Fago, who did the work from Long Island, so he was across the sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was the brother of, uh, of well, timely at the time, now Marvel editor Vincent uh, Fago. Uh, he was actually the interim, interim era editor while Stan Lee was in the Army. He uh, normally drew the funny animal books for Timely and others. And he would eventually go on to illustrate children's books 
through uh, Golden Press, those little golden books. Yep, exactly. The little, like, puppy, you know. Yeah, with, like, the little gold uh, and black corner. Uh, exactly. Spine. Binding, yeah. yeah. It was, uh, that was what it was. But that was his brother. We're talking, we, Al Fago is our man at Charlton. That's so who we're talking about. Yep. Yeah. Uh, 1950, Ed Levy's cousin, uh, Mr. Berkeley, takes over the business details of Charlton. Uh, Santa, Santangelo sets up an in-house comics division, including editors, writers, artists, and staff, all working under the same roof, uh, just to cut out the middleman, which was something that was uh, was revisited around the turn of the century with that cross-gen. Oh yeah, they, uh, they tried the same thing, but they didn't have uh, they didn't have printing facilities, did they? I don't know, but it seemed it seemed like a very it was like it was very you know you would work in your cubicle with your pencil right next to you. It was very. Uh, very interesting and strange experiment. I mean, this is this is really what sets Charlton apart from the other companies. This this mm-hmm. fact, but it's at least part partially, uh, because you know a lot of other companies would subcontract out to houses that were basically small studios of artists yep. sharing space. So it wasn't that unusual to have these creative people working together, but to have them working on staff. Yeah. Uh, and in, and you know it's funny. It brings up questions about creator creators' rights, or a, a, in another sense, it sort of puts the to bed the questions of creators' rights, because <laughs> yes. you, you know now you are actually working on salary. You know what I mean? Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of these guys were still getting paid page rate, but it sort of changes the dynamic of it, your relationship. It blurs to the, the company. line between independent contractor and employee. Uh, exactly. Yeah, you're using yeah. their facilities, you're using their pens and pencils and whatever. Yeah, so. their supply. It's because yeah. you you hear the stories about like uh, you know Steve Ditko would pop into Marvel's offices to drop off his pages, and that's not the case here. Exactly. This is, they're all they're all there. He clocked <laughs> here. Steve Ditko would clock the in clock. and yep. uh, go to work and then clock out. Yep. Anyway. <laughs> Now, in uh, 1951, Charlton brings Alfago in-house, uh, so he, he's no longer doing it uh, via satellite. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, the comics line greatly expands into uh, you know, more of the expected titles of the time, which, you know, this is the early 50s. This is pre-comics code, pre-Kifava. Uh, so we got Crime and Justice, The Racket Squad in Action, Space, we- Space Western, mm-hmm. and The Thing. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, one of my favorite horror comics. From the uh, 50s, actually. And I think there were only, oh, I don't know, six or seven issues. But uh, a lot of these, the covers are by Basil Wolverton, you know who that is, who does... The guy from Mad. Yeah, he was. A, he eventually worked for Mad. And you, you, when you see his work, it's always the really ugly people with, like, big nostrils and teeth yep. jutting out and stuff. Uh, and this would really have Steve Ditko's first Charlton work, as well as really his, some of his first work ever. Yeah. Uh, eventually, I think in the last two or three issues... Uh, definitely in the last two, maybe the last three, he does everything. He does every story. It's a horror anthology, and he's he's dry, drawing them all, and I suspect writing a lot nuts, of them, yeah. too. But uh, anyway, th- there are collections of it that are not easy to get, but it's worth giving a look if you can. Yeah, I noticed uh, there is actually, if you, if you have a half-price books near you, they have uh, a lot of the ones, at least in my area, they uh, have... A lot of the ones that didn't sell of these collections, they're actually uh, British. The PS uh, art books, yeah, those are the yeah, guys that's that, the ones. that put it those together. Are the ones. That, that's yeah, that's what I have, and uh, I mean, they're not impossible to get, but if you do find them, they should be pretty cheap. They should be for about half off the cover price. Yeah, yeah, because I actually grabbed one a few weeks ago, and it was in the clearance bin, so I got it for two dollars, and it's nice. like a fifty dollar book. Oh, so it's awesome! Decent. Which one was it? The thing, or was it? It was a. Uh, 
No, it wasn't the thing. It was a. Uh, it was one of the horror ones, but it wasn't the thing. Oh, all right. It was a witching hour one or something. Oh, witching so, something. Yeah. We'll talk about that later. Yeah, we'll we'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now uh, they also did Atomic Mouse in 1953. It's another funny animal book, which is Alfago's specialty. It's kind of a. Uh, I don't know if this came before or after Mighty Mouse, but it's not too different. It seems awfully similar, especially when you take a look at him, folks. Yeah, Sorry. side by side there. Yeah. You know, one's a little chubbier than the other. <laughs> yeah. It's about the size of it. Uh, and as we know, horror and crime comics they kind of go away after 1954. So post-55, we. Uh, we can, you know, you can hear all about that. That we have a five-part uh, epic. That's right. On that. Now, uh, Charlton is able to plug along, uh, even picking up uh, characters and assets of smaller publishers that close. So, you know, a lot of those, uh, a lot of those smaller houses, uh, smaller than Charlton, they would find themselves out of work after uh, after the, the code was passed. Mm-hmm. So, Charlton was able to uh, get able to, you know, take a little bit of the. Uh, a little bit of the uh, surplus wreckage there. A little, fl- little of a flotsam and jetsam, you yes. know, <laughs> resulting from the industry basically collapsing, you know. Yeah, a lot of stuff just wafted into their harbor and they scooped it out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, how were they able to do that? Uh, their costs were lower than uh, other publishers, so everything was under one roof, so they, were, they weren't hurt as financially, at least in the production aspect. Um, uh, their, their distributor, could, they couldn't reviews to carry their magazines because they owned it. Yeah, which um, we, which we know was a was a big problem for EC, for example. Remember, he, certainly he didn't want to have the code, and the distributor said, "We're not carrying it without that." So he put the code. Yeah, they they'd return the boxes unopened. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. So it could have been funny animal books in there, but as long as they didn't have the code, nobody wanted them. No. Um, also, they also they had the uh, the Hit Parader magazine to lean on, and their puzzle books were uh, were making money. So, you know, the comics weren't their be all end all like they would be for an actual quote unquote comic book company. Right. Yeah. And uh, you know, these puzzles uh, were being created and <laughs> created by and bought from. Uh, people in jail, prisoners, for five bucks a piece. Which is, I think, is amazing, <laughs> <laughs> isn't it? That'll definitely keep your costs down, though. I mean, geez. Yeah. So uh, they're not, they're not going to come after you for royalties. But there could also be another reason they were able to survive this period pretty well. Uh, this is all of that. Really, is a lot of our conjecture. We're sort of sure. piecing together all the reasons why we think they they weathered this. Era in comics without too much difficulty, but there was one other thing Speaking that happened. Speaking of weathering, hey, there you go. There's the segue <laughs> I was looking for. On Friday, August 18th, Hurricane Diana, 1955, Hurricane Diane cut a swath from Carolinas up the East Coast, and 11 inches of rainfall caused rivers and tributaries to overflow and dams to break. Uh, this was a huge storm in the Connecticut Valley, especially. Uh, few hundred people died as far as I was able to figure out or count at, at, at the least and the injuries were just massive but Charlton's entire grounds were under 18 feet of water Yikes. Uh, which I was unbelievable I couldn't find a picture of that that would be cool to see I think you know mm. just the uh, buildings peeking out uh, several members of staff had to be rescued from the roof of the plant from, by a Navy helicopter and all of the equipment everything the paper, the art, just destroyed. I mean, you know, you could just imagine. It seems like game over. And I think for a lot of companies, it would have been game, uh, game over. Um, but President Eisenhower declared it a disaster area and set up a federal relief program. And people, people donated from around the world. This was a huge disaster, a big cause celeb. You know, uh, people really got into trying to pitch in, help out. Um, 
So Santangelo told the employees at Charlton that they would still produce magazines and comics, but he'd only pay them half of what he had been paying them. And we haven't mentioned this yet, but Charlton already paid the lowest in the industry by far. They paid yeah. about half of the same page rate as DC and Marvel, and now they would have that again. Mm-hmm. Uh, writers, actually, they, they, I think in, for some Marvel, it was like a third of the page rate. I think so. Uh, but they went from uh, $4 to $2 a page, and the artists went from 13 to 650 Didn't even give them the 50 cents. You know that? I mean, like, you just <laughs> didn't round up to seven. Couldn't yep. even round it up to seven, let them have that 50 cents. No, they got 650 But Santangelo definitely got some money from Eisenhower's relief program, so what sure. happened to it? Uh, maybe he used it to get through this dip in comic sales. Maybe he sort of used that money so he could uh, cruise through. He didn't share it with his employees, obviously. Their rates got cut. Um, <laughs> the other thing is he had full flood insurance. So <laughs> technically, he, he did not really... He take, came out ahead. <laughs> he came. He should have come out ahead here. Uh, it's, it's really, you know, like I say, this is us just sort of spitballing about it, but it seems, it seems funny that this event would happen... In 1955, and Charlton, of all companies, uh, doesn't isn't one of the many dozens that we, that we read about that got culled that couldn't survive this uh, post comics code era. Um, so who knows? It's it's probably a little bit of everything we've mentioned, as you, things usually are. You know, yeah. uh, a low overhead coupled with extra money. We don't know how much money it might have been, and, and how much he actually had to use to get. The printing press back up and running, which wasn't free, I'm sure. No. So, uh, but the employees actually dug out and rescued Charlton. Uh, <laughs> Dick Giordano remembers shoveling mud for months, and basically, Sant'Angelo was just able to convince them that they wanted to do this. Uh, yep. Seems like a very convincing kind of fella. Yeah, really good Kool Aid there. Yeah, basically, <laughs> uh, for uh, whatever time that they pressed didn't work, they actually did outsource their production to keep the magazines coming out regularly. So they took it. At least that seriously, they knew they had to at least keep a presence in the market. Mm-hmm. And uh, Charlton eventually got back together, but I could not find out whether it was... It was either three weeks, according to Sant'Angelo, or I even saw one guy say ten months later. Uh, Giordano said several months later. Mm-hmm. Um, I think three weeks is probably, way probably ridiculous, that. you know. <laughs> um, but uh, I don't know. It, it, it did come back, though, and that's the important thing. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we mentioned uh, Dick Giordano. He uh, begins freelancing for Charlton in uh, in 1952, and he would eventually rise up to the position of executive editor, as we'd mentioned. Um, Pat Masuli, a fellow by the, that name, was the executive editor from uh, 55 to 66. Uh, he started at Charlton in 1950 as a colorist, became Al Fago's assistant, then executive editor when Fago left. Which seems to be uh, a, a theme here at Charlton. It's, it seems like you hand it off yeah, <laughs> yeah, to your like assistant. You give over the baton. Yeah, it's, uh, they, they, they promote from within at least, so there's that. Um, and people didn't really dig the guy. He was, uh, was kind of gruff, demanding, uh, eh, you know. Uh, he, he did handle all of his all of Charlton's output, though. Got to keep that in mind. The comics, yeah. the the song lyrics, uh, mags, the puzzle books, the Hot Rod magazines, the the Playboy and Mad knockoffs, all uh, that it, stuff. It's a tremendous amount of of magazines. I mean, I mean, yeah. something on the order. I think I saw seventy seven a month. 
crazy. I mean, that's a lot. That's a lot. So this is a busy. This is a busy dude. He really didn't have time for pleasantries. Or nice yeah, things. exactly. He wasn't going to go out for beers with uh with his uh you know workers. Uh, you know, they worked out of an office in Manhattan. He uh, he worked out of an office in Manhattan, so he really didn't know the creators personally. Yeah. And uh, you know, somewhere in here, uh, Santangelo's brother Charlie, he became the uh, shop manager. And now we're going to talk about the typositor. <laughs> which yeah. is another cost-saving method from Charlton. I put this in here because th- this it showed up right around here, right, right before the '60s. The typositor showed up, so it's mm-hmm. sort of jammed in here. And I, I can actually, I can actually picture the result of the typositor. It's, I, uh, I, I've seen it, yeah, and I, yeah. And uh, people out there, if you've looked at old comics, you've seen it too. It looks like a, a typewriting. You know, someone's typewritten the words <laughs> in a bubble. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is uh, basically an oversized typewriter that was supposed to save on costs, and like like Reg just said, it's uh, you know it's instead of someone lettering, it's typing straight into the comic book or, you know, in a voice bubble or uh, in a thought bubble. Uh, it's, just a, it's all it's just amazing too. Like the the, the lack of care to the original artwork. Yeah, like just fucking roll it up in the fucking roll thing. it in there and gives a shit. <laughs> and uh, this is I I, I think we've both uh, seen this mostly. In the you know not the, really the hero stuff but more the romance comics have oh, absolutely this odd yeah typing that's where I've seen it the most right now you know there are those reprints called Weird Love of romance comics yes. from the fifties sixties and that's where you see a lot of this from Charlton uh, it's it looks ridiculous but it's yeah. it's great in its way and the typositor it uh, it was an, it was it was a cost saving method because I didn't have to pay an employee but they did still credit the typositor. In- <laughs> In the books, they they credited those stories to a machine. <laughs> so there you and go. A machine. Did there the you are. Yeah. Uh, now Giordano says he took the machine home, and his, his wife did lettering at one point. Yeah. Which is so nice. I guess it wasn't too huge a typewriter. Yeah, I mean, it, I I did see the dimensions, and it was something like it was like uh, I forget what they said, six feet long or something like that. It, it was big. You you're talking like you needed two people, but it wasn't like something you needed a uh, truck to wield. Yeah, you could do it in your garage if you. You could make it work. I, yeah. I mean, this is this is what he said. Uh, you know, uh, when when we did read Giordano's interview, he seemed hazy on dates sometimes, you know, and about everything. But I don't, I don't blame him too. He was talking about something that happened fifty and forty and fifty years ago. So, uh, speaking of Giordano, so we were talking about the executive yes. editors. You know, went from Al Fago to uh, Masuli. Um, then Giordano went freelance in 1962, and, and uh, I guess I, I have here Fago, but it had to have been Mazzulli, and now that I think about it, it was. He hired Frank McLaughlin to be his assistant. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he, he sometimes calls himself art director, but there was no title. He did everything, and so did, that's the kind of operation it was. Proofreading, coloring, lettering, anything he had to do, do an art correction, and he was also the buffer between Mazzulli and other departments and creators. So that's how he got his start, and he's going to factor in much more importantly into Charlton later on. Now, in 1966, my impression was it was sort of at the request of Mazzulli, but whatever it was, they reorganized, and they decided to split the operation into a music division, which I guess would handle the music lyric magazines and uh, hit parade and stuff like that, and the comics. And Mazzulli would head up the music division, and Dick Giordano was made the executive editor of the comics division. Uh, the job was offered to Frank McLaughlin, which would have been the proper Charlton procedure <laughs> yes. up till now to hand it off to your assistant. 
But he turned it down, preferring instead to do freelance art for Charlton. Uh, I think he just wanted the freedom, personally. Later, sure. on, later on, he assisted on Brenda Starr, which actually was collected into comic book form by Charlton, which I think is amazing why they would do that. Uh, and he did other illustration work in his life, too. I think he just wanted to spread out. Whereas Giordano had a kind of a growing family. He wanted a steady paycheck. And he got it uh, from 1966. Uh, the creative staff immediately embraced him, thought he was great. Uh, definitely a big change from Mazzulli, I would assume. And he developed the fresh air, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, so this is 66. This is the, you know, really the, the Marvel... Age of comics. It has yeah. taken hold. Yeah, exactly. It is happening now. You know, Fantastic Four and Avengers and all these comics are just blowing them away. And I think that they saw this was something, you know, superheroes are coming back. Giordano uh, developed the action hero line to capitalize on this resurgence of interest. He preferred the term action hero to superhero just because it was different from DC and Marvel. And also, only one of their characters, Captain Adam, who may sound familiar to many of you listeners, mm -hmm. uh, but he was a Charlton character, and only he really had powers. Um, I have here just a little note. Just think... This Captain Adam existed before Fantastic Four. Oh, well, it doesn't matter. Who cares? That's a, that's a stupid aside. But uh, he established a quick rapport with the creators and showed a sincere interest in their work, uh, which was new to them. Uh, for a lot of them, even the ones that had come from places like D.C., where they could be none too polite either, I'll tell you. You know what I mean? The, being nice was not necessarily a common thing in publishing of all stripes back in the day. And uh, he motivated them despite his low page rate for the artists, which in 1966 66. was $20 a page when DC's lowest that they would give you was 45 mm -hmm. I mean, $20 for a page of comics, Chris, that's pathetic. You know? <laughs> I, I mean, really now. You know, I mean, that that's a whole, a whole day of work if it's done decently. Done right. You know? I mean, <laughs> exactly. Even, even if it's a half a day, that's a, that's a horrible, horrible salary, so... It's a rough life, yeah. It is, you know. Even with Kirby-level output, you could just barely make a decent living with that. So um, this is going to begin and kick off a new era in Charlton that is going to resonate and really is the reason we're talking about them. Isn't that right? Mm -hmm. uh, this action hero time. And amazingly, you're going to be surprised, listening audience, at how short a time it was. But before <laughs> we get to that, Chris and I are going to take a little break, take a little breather. And when we come back, we're going to tell you about some creators and about uh, the path of Dick Giordano throughout the rest of the 60s uh, after this great bit about a hurricane. Yet nature's greatest fury ever since the deluge is still the flood. This was Northeast United States in August 1955. Hurricane Diane, following Connie, poured water on the soaked land. Floods broke out from Pennsylvania to Massachusetts. The torrent raced down the hills, into the swollen rivers, then over the streets, and through many highly industrialized cities. The armed forces, along with the police, firemen, civil defense volunteers, Red Cross workers, and the Salvation Army began rescue operations. More than 300 towns in six states needed help.
flood zone was declared a major disaster area. The Federal Administration was authorized to coordinate federal relief efforts. The Army's Corps of Engineers was called to take on a major part. Facing him and his engineers were Herculean tasks. Repairing water and sewage systems, clearing and shoring up roads, mending riverbanks, dams, public schools, hospitals, post offices, decontaminating streams, removing debris and wreckage. More than 500 local contractors were spot negotiated and immediately put to work under supervision of the Corps of Engineers. Some 1,200 pieces of heavy equipment were employed at once. Much water, but none to drink. A flood's brutal irony. Contamination endangers health. Water purification is always among the first tasks of relief. While Army engineers struggled against time to alleviate immediate suffering, they looked toward the future. They constantly work at flood control, so these towns may never again face such widespread destruction. at the door. <laughs> we don't want you tracking mud into the podcast here. Um, what we're going to do now is talk about some of the notable creators. We're not going to go terribly deep because a lot of these fellas could, would, and probably will uh, fill an entire uh, Weird Comics history bio. Uh, we're going to start with Joe Gill, who pretty much wrote everything. Yeah. He, uh, an amazing amount. Oh, yeah. He, uh, prolific is uh, definitely a word to describe him, and, and prolific means just putting out a lot of output. Exactly. It doesn't mean great. Uh, it means doesn't a mean volume. Great. Yes. Um, now, uh, we have a quote here from, uh, is it Mark Avenier or Avenier? Or? I wish I could tell you. I'm going to say okay. Avenier. Why not? Avenier. We'll do that. He wrote, Gil wrote a staggering number of comics. There are a half dozen guys in this category. So out of everybody who's done comics, he he numbers this kind of prolificy yeah. <laughs> at a half dozen. Uh, he says if someone came back and said he was the most prolific ever, no one would be surprised. Uh, he goes on, in a business where some writers were pressed to write a book a week, Gil often produced a finished manuscript in a day. Wow. Uh, yeah, Dick Giordano, uh, Pete Morisi, and Roy Thomas uh, all say that he is definitely a contender for having the most written comics ever. However, uh, the Guinness Book of World Records gives that accolade to a, a fellow by the name of Paul S. Newman. Who, I, I uh, assume this isn't the Paul Newman of movie and uh, or the salad dressing salad dressing fame. Yeah. No. <laughs> no, that's the disambiguation. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> now he uh, he's uh, credited with uh, over forty one hundred published stories. Wow. And approximately thirty six thousand pages. I mean th that is amazing and but. Now, I just want to point out, though, for Joe Gill, 
I have a feeling he was dashing stuff off so quickly and it was being put on press, you know, that there isn't really a record. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's exactly it's, you'd really have to go through the invoices and, you know, maybe the, the pay stubs to find out how many stories he did. But yeah, I mean, you know, even to be in the in contention for someone that's done 4,100 plus stories. Yeah. This is a lot of freaking story. You know, most people, work most people in their lifetimes don't do a tenth of that. So No, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And uh, this fellow was born uh, July 13th, 1919 in Scranton, Pennsylvania. He passed away December 17th, 2006. He is the co-creator of Captain Adam, the Peacemaker, and Judo Master. Uh, he his earliest work was done for uh, Timely slash Marvel in the 1940s, and he wrote a bit of a uh, Captain America post uh, Simon and Kirby. Yeah, yeah. He uh, would fall out of favor with Stan Lee, and he left. Um, he went to Charlton, and he wrote a lot of comics. <laughs> <laughs> he did some spot work for Dell, and uh, he would follow uh, Dick Giordano. We're going a little, we're jumping a little bit ahead in the timeline yeah. here, but. Uh, he followed Dick Giordano to DC Comics, where he wrote, uh, among other things, uh, The Secret Six, the you know first version of that, and also the licensed title Hot Wheels, based on the uh, little, uh, I was going to call them the Matchbox cars, because I guess that's like Kleenex for tissues. But, uh, Basically, <laughs> uh, yeah. The Hot Wheels, the little, the little cars. Yeah, the little metal cars, and you know yes. they, they, they have their own little world also. It, it's it's going to be tough to, you know, you're, you're going to have this uh, timeline sort of filled in as we go along, because... These guys, they overlap, you know what I mean? There, there's yeah. a lot of overlap as to when they were in and what they were doing. Joe Gill is one of the... He was here. At, he was there at the earliest days of comics, you know? Uh, we're talking about one of the originators, so um, definitely a fascinating guy when we read about him in uh, that magazine oh, yeah. in, in Comic Book Artist. He has this interview that just will tickle you pink if you get your hands mm. on it. Uh, another gentleman who also worked at Charlton, you might have heard of him, named Steve Ditko. Never heard of him. <laughs> this was uh, some of his earliest professional work, as we talked about before. He pretty much art directed The Thing, the comic book, after issue number five. And by art directed, I meant draw everything. Yep. Uh, and I suspect he wrote everything. He's not credited with writing everything, but when you read it, um, not that not that a lot of it has his, you know, politics necessarily, but it just has a kind of stilted type a of feel. writing, yeah. a feel to it. But anyway, that's 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 what I think. I'm not sure how true that is. Um, he stayed in a hotel, and I'm guessing it was probably an efficiency hotel, one of those by the weekly places. Yeah, uh, in extended stay. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I can't imagine he was staying over at the uh, Ritz Carlton, you know, <laughs> equivalent in Connecticut. But while he worked during the week, he would stay in Derby. He would go home to New York on the weekends. He was, when people say he was a pretty affable guy back then. Uh, this is one of my favorite stories. Was that uh, around Christmas in the mid 1960s? He started putting up a weekly comic page on the wall near the men's room for fun. It was a Christmas horror story where the elves ate Santa or something at the end. No one really was positive what happened. But there were eight uh, pages of it in full color. And he would pin it up Monday mornings as he would return back to work and back to Connecticut. And after a few weeks, people started waiting for him to come to work on Mondays to read this ridiculous Christmas horror comic. He also would uh, play ping pong in the cafeteria with Dick Giordano. After lunch, sometimes they would move the tables away, set up a ping pong table, and have at it for a while. Uh, no one seemed to care, I think, because everyone kind of worked on a per page rate anyway. So as long as yeah. you got your work out, then uh, that was fine. But and I, I just found this sort of interesting, just more to color in the enigmatic Steve Ditko. But um, 
he had some kind of respiratory ailment. Dick Giordano seemed to think he might have had tuberculosis as a kid. And so he would stop playing after about an hour. He'd say, all right, that's enough. And, uh, you know, that was it. That was enough. You know, Dick Giordano wasn't trying to kill him or anything. No. So sometimes Ditko did write his stuff, but he didn't like to be credited for it. And he, often, and, and he didn't want to give out the impression that he was doing everything in a comic. I think he wanted to look more professional, that it was, you know, a team of people working on it. He would eventually revamp Blue Beetle and Captain Adam for the Action Heroes line. Uh, and then he read, uh, or something happened where he yeah, probably read The Fountainhead, or maybe he heard Ayn Rand speak, but he became a follower of Ayn Rand. Uh, and not long after that, he created a character that some of you might sound, find familiar, along with a Blue Beetle and Captain Adam, uh, called The Question. And in one issue, The Question opts to save a villain... He opts not to save a villain, okay? He doesn't kill a villain, but he doesn't save a villain. And this, Dick Giordano said uh, that he thought this was the first time that his politics was starting to creep into the comics. You know, um, without going too far off track here, you know, Dicko did a famous character for a, uh, a Wally Wood-produced comic zine called Witsend, and that was called Mr. A. Uh, that was a pretty blatant objectivist character, um, Black or white, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, pretty much lays it out and and keeps talking about it too. I mean, <laughs> he doesn't shut up. These are wordy. These are wordy comics where it's like if you want to know the philosophy of objectivism, this is one way you can get it in. Uh, and there's a real similarity. They're both guys in suits. They sort of have this very uh, severe, straight line look to them. You know, I, I, people seem to suggest that Mister A was the logical conclusion of um, the question, but. I don't know. Who knows? That's uh, that's conjecture. Mm-hmm. Um, the classic story, of course, that Ditko would would co-create Doctor Strange, Spider-Man, and then he had a fallout with Stan Lee at the end of the '60s over Spider-Man. He actually did a little work for DC, and he would go back to working for Charlton uh, for many years due to the freedom they gave him at a third of the pay. Mm-hmm. Um, this would have been more into the '70s, and we'll get to that in the second part. But I want what I want to point out is that. Ditko could have worked anywhere. He could have worked for any ad agency. He could have done storyboards for any movie company, uh, making a ton more money. There's like no question about it. Everyone always says the ad agencies, you know, that's where Starenko worked his day job. Uh, that's where the money was, and he didn't. He, he, I think he really believed in comics, and he wanted to make the comics that he wanted to make, and Charlton allowed him that freedom, uh, if not the proper distribution. So... This says a lot for Charlton, I think, as a place to work, that it was sure. probably pretty pleasant, if not very lucrative. Yes. Uh, next fellow we're going to talk about is uh, Danny O'Neill. Uh, Dick Giordano would come to New York City once a week, and uh, he'd work out of a rented or loaned office space. Um, at, at one time, it was the office of the, of the company lawyer, and he would give out assignments and receive finished artwork there. Uh, Denny O'Neill got wind of this and decided he needed more work, so he went and he checked it out. He wrote, Children of Doom for the Charlton premiere number two from in November 1967, which is kind of like a showcase title. You know, they'd, uh, they'd feature, you know, different stories every month. Yeah, different, um, different types of stories. I think there were four issues, maybe five. Mm-hmm. We're gonna we're, we'll get into the numbering <laughs> pretty quick here. Um, now the original story had to be pulled for licensing issues. Uh, Giordano asked O'Neill to come up with a new script in about a week, and it was an anti-war story. Surprise of surprises. Yeah. Uh, he wrote under the name Sergius O'Shaughnessy, 
so it wouldn't conflict with uh, Marvel and Stan Lee. That's a hell of a name. Isn't it? <laughs> uh, next up, we're going to talk about Steve Skates, uh, who for the longest time I thought was Steve Skeets. Yep, so did I. <laughs> he was born in 1943. Uh, he was working for Marvel and, and Tower Comics, though, who were the publishers of Wally Wood's Thunder Agents, among others, uh, until Tower Comics uh, work dried up and he was, uh, he was over knocking on Giordano's door for work. Uh, G- uh, Tower Comics closed down in uh, 1969. Yeah. Now he used the pseudonym Warren Sav- Warren Saven. Yep. Because he didn't want to take Stanley off either. I thought a uh, lot of people just don't want to piss Stanley off. It seems you know. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like he's the 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 what is it the straw that stirs the drink it in the industry. At this definitely, time, huh? definitely by the mid 60s, I think people saw the writing on the wall. Absolutely. Um, now he wrote uh, the Tyro team in Charlton Premier Number no. One, July 1967. Uh, this uh, issue was the only appearance of Roy Thomas's character, the Shape. And we'll we'll get to Roy in a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote every issue of the Many Ghosts of Doctor Graves. He did the Thane of Bagoth backup strips in Hercules, which were drawn by Jim Aparo. Uh, Skates was hired to uh, punch up the dialogue in one of Ditko's issues of The Question at one point. Uh, at one point, he, uh, he questioned, uh, he has the question say something like, I don't think so, my friend. And Ditko called Skates, Skates to say that uh, the question would never refer to a villain as my friend. Which uh, caused the line to get whited out. Yeah, the, yeah actually, what, and, and I haven't seen it, but if you see the balloon, there's an obvious space missing where my friend <laughs> used to go. <laughs> yep. He just, uh, he got a little verklempt there. Yeah. And uh, he he'd also, he put out a lot of other work. He did a lot of stuff with Charlton over the years. Uh, yeah. It's almost tough to really pin down exactly what everyone did. It seems to come out of a numbering pace. Yeah, so and the numbering yeah. is... And some of the issues don't actually have numbers on the cover. Did you notice that, too? Yep. It's, yep. I mean, this is a collector's nightmare, I'll be honest with you. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like, you're literally going into a place to be like, I want the issue. I mean, I guess if you have a dealer, or you'll say, this year or something. you know, but, yeah, but yeah, if you're going into, like, you know, I want the one with Blue Beetle hugging a woman while a, a plane flies behind him, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> uh, it doesn't make any sense. Anyway, so uh, Roy Thomas, now this guy has is a... Tremendous resource. Uh, you know, you, if you look at our show notes, you're going to see the res- the uh, reference material we use, but a lot of it comes from Roy Thomas. He, he does encyclopedic, mag- yeah. Uh, he's incredible. This guy is the premier uh, comics historian. He has a magazine, Alter Ego, that comes out, I think, bi monthly or something like that. Hmm. And uh, most of this information that we got here, a lot of it came from an issue of comic book artist that we're going to mention. In the show notes, but this guy definitely deserves his props for keeping comics history alive. So, his first two, and, and just to just to say, in case you don't know, he eventually would work at Marvel and sort of became the heir to Stanley. Yeah, he he was sort of the one that wrote the closest to Stanley. Would eventually take over all of his as titles I think, later, yeah, and then later as editor in chief. But even initially, he was writing stuff like Thor and the Avengers and and uh, X Men. But anyway, so that that's who he is. But his first two pieces of paid work were for Charlton. Uh, his first one was Son of Vulcan, number 50, in January 1966. This was the second Trojan War. You know, uh, Roy Thomas was a school teacher in uh, Missouri, and he kind of used yeah. he kind of used that to uh, bring out some education in his comics. He really thought <laughs> they should be educational. Uh, this his ability, his chance to write for Son of Vulcan was actually part of a contest uh, the editor Mazzuli ran appealing to fanzines. Uh, this may have been the first time fanzines were ever acknowledged by the mainstream, uh, which I just thought was interesting. Even though the 
uh, phrase fanzine was coined in the 40s for sci-fi science fiction hmm. fanzines or you know magazines by fans. This may be the first time we ever see it kind of acknowledged on a cover, especially. But the blurb said, "Attention, fanzine readers." Charlton's challenge has been answered. The story in this issue was written by one of you. Don't mm-hmm. miss it. Uh, you know, Roy Thomas said he, he did get this call for writers uh, himself being a... He, his fanzine back then was Alter Ego. And he's been making it for many, many decades. But because Alter Ego had a twice-yearly schedule at best, <laughs> uh, he never actually ran it. He, did, he didn't want to run things that were, you know, uh, so out of date. Uh, he also mentions that he was credited as R. Thomas. Like, they couldn't do the O-Y, you know? Like, there was just two <laughs> more letters. It's not like his name was Reginald or something like this. Um, but to be fair, the other creators were also credited by the first initial last name, so they probably did it just to make it all look the same. Yeah. Then after that, um, Mazzuli liked his work, wanted him to keep working, and uh, said he asked him to do some more. Write, wrote The Eye of Horus and Blue Beetle number 54, March 1966, uh, coincidentally, these were the final issues of both books, but it wasn't hard to get a final issue at Charlton when the, when the most series lasted three and four issues. You know, you pretty much had a one in four chance that it would be the last yeah. one. Um, and he states that a lot of their stories have found their way to Charlton after he'd officially departed the company through industry friends who continued to work there. Uh, he anonymously conceived a character called The Shape, and he gave the character to his friend Richard Grass Green. That was the one. Love that, that name. Well, yeah, I know. I, grass Green. I wonder if it was because of the last name or because of the grass, man. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that was the one we mentioned. That was in uh, Charlton premiere number two. Uh, he developed a backup to Peter Cannon Thunderbolt called The Sentinels uh, without telling Marv Wolfman, which was good because sort of similar to um, some... Uh, you know, characters in the X-Men books called yep. the Sentinels that you might know very well. This was uh, drawn by Sam Granger. Uh, I don't know. I don't think these Sentinels had anything to do with... Um, no. No, there were three characters, three human uh, characters. Yeah. Uh, he said that the characters themselves were very X-Men-like. Maybe. But, uh, the uh, name, a, you know, Just different. looking at them, they almost seem like a, a early Guardians of the Galaxy, like the one that yeah. you know, Drake did, but I don't know. It, it, I, I See, the problem is we haven't seen a lot of these comics because uh, they didn't survive a lot. You know, they no. weren't heavily collected. The print ones weren't, weren't big. They're hard to get and your hands on. they were low-quality printings, and they as were, we've covered, too. Yeah, yeah. If, you didn't, if you didn't keep them nice, they were going to fall apart pretty easily. Yeah, but anyway. I think it was uh, who one of them said... You could, as soon as they come off the press, you can smell them decaying. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't remember which one said that, but that was one of the quotes. That's how that's how poorly these were produced. Uh, and the last one, he he let his concepts of Batman and Robin, and the bestest league in America be used in a parody called Superman from Go Go Comics, which I said, come on, this isn't. Really <laughs> that's that, that's like something like I, you'd expect to see in a thirteen-year-old's uh, yep. notebook, and Chris disagrees. He created them, damn it. They're his creations, and he deserves credit. Original creations you do know. not copy. Does that mean that I should, should I copyright my uh, Poo Poo Man and Pee Pee Boy? I made those when I was five, uh, my original superheroes. Well, we got to get in touch with Roy. Maybe, yeah. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, Dick Giordano. He was born uh, July 20th, 1932, in Bellevue Hospital in New York, New York. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, he passed in uh, March uh, on March 27th, 2010. He attended the School of Industrial Art in Manhattan, the SIA, mm-hmm. uh, began as a freelancer in Charlton in, 19, in 1952. Uh, while editor, he edited the entire line of 34 bi-monthly titles without, uh, without the support of, a, of an assistant. Mm-hmm. Um, he uh, enjoyed responding to fan mail and uh, the comics bi-monthly schedule coupled with the fact that printing letters uh, were in-house meant he could address letters with, about a comic book in the next issue. So they, it wasn't like you'd have to wait. Well, you'd still be waiting a couple of months, but you wouldn't be waiting a couple of issues to see if your letter that's got printed. Exactly. That's the thing. Yeah. Usually yeah. now, what is it, three months, right? So. You... Yeah, I, I haven't seen a lot. Actually, you know, Image still does letters columns, <laughs> but uh, the, I've, I've seen some in Spawn and Savage Dragon. But, unbeatable uh, Squirrel Girl does a letters column. Oh no, kidding! And it's uh, it, you know, it's it's silly like you'd expect, but yeah. but they but they're addressing comics two months old. Okay. As usual, you know, because keeping the spirit time. alive. Yeah. <laughs> now uh, he didn't type, and uh, you know, not a lot of fellas did that back in the day. Uh, but he would uh, write his reply in longhand, give it to his secretary to type up. Uh, he didn't have an assistant, but he did have a secretary. It was probably maybe a shared secretary for the uh, office. That's possible, but but yeah. also it's sort of in those days like. Everyone just had a secretary. You know, they were ex- yep. expected just to do everything, and you know, you didn't even consider them your assistant. But anyway, yeah, you, you wear, she wears her pillbox hat. And, uh, <laughs> I assume the, the white gloves, right? <laughs> no, uh, they would uh, they would often take a uh, a piece of typing paper directly to the press and have them strip it in. So it was uh, they would be typed up and put on the rollers. You yeah. know, it was put right in there. Um, and that's why uh, many, all th- actually all these letters pages, they were black and white because uh, there was no time for separations. Which works well since what do you, what do you have to print in color? Exactly. <laughs> What's yeah. the difference? <laughs> I want the text green. <laughs> um, now he'd move on to a, a pair of lengthy stints at DC Comics. Um, now this is an interesting one. He was on DC's side uh, during, uh, in 1987, 1988, there was a creator's rights issue that came up. And uh, a lot of creators actually, they wrote up a bill of rights. And uh, Dick Giordano sided with corporate. He sided with DC. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's probably a subject uh, that we'll, we will cover sometime because it is just so interesting. I, I think we're definitely going to talk about this either in a longer one about Giordano and or a uh, podcast about creators' rights and the history of that. But this is interesting. I, you know, you have to wonder whether his sympathy for DC came from his time as executive editor at Charlton. At Charleston, he yeah. knew what it was to be a uh, executive. And he was also a executive or an editor-in-chief, what do they call it, whatever they call it at D.C. for a time. Yeah, whatever that was. So, you know, this this is someone who was sympathetic to uh, the corporate world. Uh, that's interesting in itself. Uh, another gentleman that I really found fascinating was Pete Morisi. He was born January 7th, 1928 in Brooklyn, uh, lived on to October 12th, 2003, he created Peter Cannon, dot, 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 Thunderbolt, and Thunderbolt number one came out in 1966. He also attended the School of Industrial Arts in Manhattan. Uh, he left a year and a half later to join the Army, though. He didn't see it all the way through, but one of his classmates was Alex Toth, <laughs> right? Did you, you read about that? Yep. And uh, they, they maintained a friendship on and off over the years. Uh, he moonlighted as a comic book artist. He actually started doing comics... But then when the work started drying up a little bit or he wasn't making the kind of money he wanted to, he tried out for the civil service exam and he became a New York City police officer. But they had rules against moonlighting and also I don't think he wanted 
his uh, guys of the force to know that he was drawing, you know, pe- funny books, yeah. th- funny books, Thunderbolt or whatever. <laughs> so he uh, would sign his work, Pam, P A M, and the M was just three vertical lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, very iconic when you when you see it, it you know, it's, it really strikes you. Often in a little box, which uh, was something, you know, very unique, I think, and, and very striking. And yeah. he he was on the police force from fifty six to seventy six. Um, I wonder if, you know, this might be because the rates were slashed in 55. You know, <laughs> maybe he was like, I can't make enough money doing this now. But uh, so when he left, they, uh, they gave him a job. They said, do one job. And that one job turned into years and years of work. He pretty much was a steady freelance artist for Charlton. But he was on the police force until 76, like I say. Uh, later on, he retained the rights to Peter Cannon uh, after DC kind of had it for a little while and didn't do anything with it. Yeah, they did like like a three issue miniseries in the early nineties. Yeah, and uh, I think he showed up in Kingdom Come. Oh, really? Yeah, just as a cameo. That's I don't even weird. think it was a. What if they? Yeah. What if they had to pay him a licensing fee for that by then? It I'm wouldn't sure. surprise me. Who knows? But uh, yeah, they they had it for a little while. They they didn't make make a go of it. Um, as we'll find out next uh, part, anyway, DC did buy up a lot of these characters, but I want to save that big surprise for you all later, even though I just Indeed. revealed it. Uh, <laughs> he moved to Staten Island, New York, 1973, and he drew illustrations for the Staten Island Stats column in the Staten Island Advance newspaper, their local news. news uh, mm. Just like little factoids about Staten Island. It's pretty cool. And uh, the Maurizi estate now maintains the rights to Peter Cannon, Thunderbolt. In a 2000 interview, Maurice said that if any company wanted to publish a T-Bolt story, he would have to he would have to have complete control of the project. Now, obviously, he can't anymore. No. But I wonder if that extends to his estate. I'm not sure what the rules are. Or I'm not whether. sure because I think he showed up in uh, that Dynamite Project Superhero Superpowers thing. Oh, really? I want to say he showed up in that. Well, I, I don't know. I'd, I'd, I'd be kind of curious to know what involvement the estate or his yeah, children his had. I'm not sure yeah. what the story is. Uh, next person we want to talk about is a, it's a brief one. It's a Pat Boyette. Uh, he was born uh, July twenty third, nineteen twenty three, in San Antonio, and he passed uh, January fourteenth, two thousand. He uh, served in World War Two as a cryptographer. Uh, upon return, he became a television news anchor in San Antonio. He also wrote, directed, and produced several low-budget films throughout the 60s. And we're mentioning him here because he was the co-creator of The Peacemaker, with, uh, along with Joe Gill, who wrote everything. Um, Peacemaker was uh, unique because he was a pacifist superhero. He was uh, in his civilian gear. He was a diplomat. And uh, in his hero gear, he only employed non-lethal weapons when he fought crime. Hmm. And uh, he also opened... Though not not Boyette, but uh, the Peacemaker, he opened uh, the Pax Institute, which uh, we'll we'll probably talk about briefly next week when we discuss a little bit of the the multiversity. Yeah, for um, sure. Uh, we're gonna go to Frank McLaughlin. Uh, he was born March eighteenth, nineteen thirty-five, in Stratford, Connecticut, and he's still alive. Uh, he became Charlton's art director in nineteen sixty-two. This is the uh, where there really was no title we mentioned earlier. Yeah, he was he was the assistant to the regional office, regional exactly. manager. Exactly, he he was the vice president <laughs> in charge of everything, you know, of stuff. <laughs> of stuff. <Yes. laughs> um, he created the first martial arts comic, uh, the, uh, among the first martial arts comics, anyway. The, the Judo Master. Yeah, it was a character I never got. <laughs> I hate the costume. Um, 
Now, this was in Special War Stories, number four, uh, November 1965. Now, this comic caused friction with Mazzulli because this was intended to be a comic strip, and Charlton under Mazzulli was strict about not allowing uh, extraneous work. Uh, for some reason, Giordano was fine with it. Yeah. Uh, notable. This uh, this series is notable for hitting the uh, shelves a half decade before the uh, Kung Fu craze hit the United States. So uh, a little bit ahead of the times here, which is strange for comics. Uh, McLaughlin himself, uh, he practiced judo from ages 18 to 50. Wow. At the uh, Joe Costa's Aca- Academy of Judo. And okay. he also taught judo at the YMCA during the 50s. He would uh, become an inker on a ton of DC comics, including uh, Runs on the Flash and Justice League of America, well into the 1980s. And uh, he, he claimed that the policy of Charlton, which he placed as the third biggest publishing house at the time, uh, was to, quote, knock off a popular book and do our version of it. There you go, folks. That's all there is <laughs> to it. You know, that's the secret to success. It is. Is to just, you know, take, take rip something off, stir it in a, in a pot and spit it back out. Uh, I, you know, Frank McLaughlin really sounds like a, a tie that binds here because he sort of did everything. You know, he he, yep. he worked on the production side and he worked on the creative side. And I have I have seen Judo Master, and like you, I've never been a big fan of no. Kung Fu comics in general. I was never big on uh, except for Shang Chi or Richard Dragon. Yeah, that stuff. I, I remember Iron Fist. I liked. I'd say would be the closest to a Kung hmm. Fu comic, but. Um, Definitely fascinating guy, and maybe someday worth his own entire chat. We'll see. Uh, there were some. Here are some notable publications. Now, folks, this list is very <laughs> difficult to compile in a lot of ways, and it's it's really hard to explain that these titles just kept changing their numbering. Uh, titles would just change their title. I'm sorry, they would keep their numbering, change their title as they would go along. The reason they did this, and this was not uncommon in comics. Uh, I'd say most comics companies did this. EC did this when they turned into entertaining comics. They essentially kept a lot of their numbering. Uh, the reason they did this was to keep their second-class postage rate. This was something you had to apply for, and if you didn't feel like reapplying for a new one, you could just retitle your magazine and maintain the same rate. Um, this was generally done, though, like, say, you well, you want to change... Superman into Superman Adventures. Well, that's that's pretty obvious. It's pretty much the same thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Charlton would take such liberties with this. <laughs> it's unbelievable. I mean, they would they would they would have a comic about one thing and totally change gears and just pick up the numbering. Um, so it, it's it was kind of tough to keep track of what was going on, you know. Plus, some comics don't have numbers on the cover. You, when did they happen? Keeping. Making sure everything happened in some kind of linear fashion was really difficult to corral. Uh, also, I, I want to point out that this entire time, this action hero time, goes from 66 to 69. This is three years. So a lot of I can't these comics. It was so short. It, yeah. and, 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 you know, a lot of these characters we're talking about, you still see them in comics today. Uh, mm-hmm. So in such a short amount of time, they, they, they made quite an impact, I think, on a lot of people, a lot of creators uh, who would later on. Or people, fans that would go on to create comics later, uh, obviously, as we'll talk about later. Uh, in the next episode, Alan Moore was very taken with these characters. So, um, it, it's there's not a ton of books, really. You know what I mean? There's, <laughs> some of these books had four issues, some of them had like six issues, and that was about it. That was all they could get out. They were on a bi-monthly schedule. They did the best they could. But here's a, a list that I think is pretty good overview of Charlton's output from 
really starting from 44 with Yellow Jacket, but really kicking into high gear in the mid-50s. So we have uh, Atomic Bunny, who was formerly the Atomic Rabbit. Uh, all told, there were, that run was 55 to 59, but not continuously. It, it, yeah. it had some breaks. Atomic Mouse, that one was created by Al Fago. That was from 53 to 63. Again, I doubt it was continuous. Uh, <laughs> probably had long periods where it wasn't being produced. Blue Beetle had five series. Again, not continuously, but it was published from 1955 through 1968. Actually getting a renumbering. This to, this one was one of the very few. When mm-hmm. Ditko revamped it, they did start with a new number one. So I guess they thought something reasonably decent had happened, or Dick Giordano was able to sneak it past the owners without them noticing. <laughs> uh, this is one of my favorite titles, Brides in Love, as opposed to most brides. Sure. They're usually, you know, usually kind of... Uh, Immolays. Exactly. They're sort of <laughs> apathetic. That ran from 56 to 65. We've uh, also got Captain Adam, who uh, ran from 65 to 67, taking over the Strange Suspense Stories title. Uh, Captain Gallant of the Foreign Legion. That's a great one. I love that one. Uh, <laughs> the first issue of that was a Heinz promotion comic. Uh, Charlie Chan uh, ran from 1955 to 1956, which continued publication from another publisher. So uh, it was absorbed from uh, Crestwood Publications. Yeah, and, and it picked up the numbering, too, though. Like picked it up the number. started at five or whatever, so there you go. And, and as, a, as a collector and a fake-ass historian, I like that. That's <laughs> <laughs> definitely helpful, yeah. Um, Charlton Premier from 67 to 68, which was formerly Marine War Heroes. So <laughs> <laughs> one month you're reading Marine War Heroes, the next, or two months later, it's Charlton Premier. Well, it's a good thing they didn't have poll lists back then, because you, really, uh, right? you really would be pissed <laughs> off, right? If you were like, oh, good, what the hell is this crap? <laughs> <laughs> we got uh, The Many Ghosts of Dr. Graves, which was in 1967. It would become a Dr. Graves title in the 1980s. Yeah. Uh, Davy Crockett from 55 to 57 becomes Kid Montana. Eh, or A, E H, exclamation yeah. point, which is their, you know, their kind of half hearted mad magazine ripoff that ran from 53 to 54. I actually read, <laughs> I read an issue of this recently in uh, The Sincerest Form of Parody, which is a book okay. of, of mad magazine parodies. And boy, it sucks, you know. It really, <laughs> it really makes cracked magazine look like something a genius would uh, come up with, or that's, some of these other, other also rands. <laughs> now they wrote, they also had a lot of war titles with fighting in the title. <laughs> I couldn't could do them all. Fighting army, fighting yeah. everything was fighting Fightin forces. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Gorgo, which was a Steve Ditko monster book, ran from sixty-one to sixty-five. That was based on a film, uh, High School Confidential Diary. Ooh. Awesome. Uh, 1960 to 1962, uh, I guess they graduated because it becomes Confidential Diary. Yeah, the college years. Yes. <laughs> They're standing on the edge of tomorrow. Uh, Johnny Dynamite in 1955 becomes Dynamite and eventually Foreign Intrigues. <laughs> like, what the hell? It becomes like a pamphlet for the Council of Foreign Relations? Like, what, goes, what happened here? <laughs> These are the words you don't say. Uh, <laughs> Now, Judo Master, 66 to 67. I guess he took up Judo because he got tired of guns because the book was called Gun Master. Yeah. 
And there were actually two issue number 89s in the transition, which would have driven me insane. I know. That's a, like this really collecting Charles. Good luck to you because yeah. you are getting, you know, I bet getting a complete run is tough enough without knowing what the hell comics you're missing. <laughs> you know, it's like a freaking. Can you imagine having all of them and celebrating? And it's like, well, do you have both in the fit, both number 89s? Like, what? Yeah, I know. It, <laughs> oh, it, it definitely messes with my, with my uh, obsessive nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was Kanga, another Ditko monster book. This was also based on a movie. I know I've never seen Maybe. Gorgo yeah. or Kanga. I would love to see him. This ran from sixty to sixty-five. Uh, Mystery of Unex- Mysteries of Unexplored Worlds ran from fifty-six to sixty-five. That becomes Son of Vulcan somehow. Yeah. Which you know sounds right under the under our you know twenty first century uh, uh, ears and eyes here because you know Vulcan space okay it's true but, yeah but, but Vulcan was actually a Thor ripoff yeah it it, it was essentially <laughs> the god of fire right of, yeah. of, of Roman or Greek myth I can I guess that would have been yeah so you go from aliens to mythology I know it's and it really seems like they were just stabbing at whatever who cares. Uh, Peacemaker, the one we talked about before, 1967, that came out. Goofy helmet. Now, Reptilicus, yeah, they definitely. Uh, the, Peacemaker is is a interesting How do you fit comic. Through the door? Yeah, you get you got to check it out. It's sort of, it almost sort of seems, um, yeah, definitely a Kirby inspired outfit, I would say. But, it almost looks New Gods ish, yeah. But not quite there, you know what I mean? <laughs> not quite getting the uh, the the zeitgeist of it. Um, now, Reptilicus, 1961, I only, I only called this one out because I have actually seen this movie. It's one of my favorite movies. Mm. It's about a giant lizard that destroys Copenhagen. Uh, this title becomes Reptosaurus the Terrible, which is something I want to read so badly I can't even <laughs> begin to tell you. Uh, Son of Vulcan, which we talked about before, that had been Mysteries of Unexplored Worlds. That was uh, 1965 to 1966. Teenage Confidential Confessions. From 1960 to 1964. I wonder if and that changed into high school. No, that didn't actually. Maybe. maybe or yeah. an old lady confidential. <laughs> if it kept running, that's what it would have been. Old spinster. Game, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and now this this one I just wanted to put here because this sort of, besides being a great title, sort of gives you an example of the changes that some of these titles went through. There was uh, This Magazine is Haunted from 1951 to 1958. This becomes Danger and... And then another series called Adventure. I think it was Mm -hmm. two different titles. And then a second series of this magazine is haunted, picks up from Zaza the Mystic later on, (laughs) which is what Charlie Chan had turned into. From 1944 to 1946, uh, I think there's a a screw-up here. But... Yeah, I mean, how do you track this kind of thing? You know what I mean? You can't. If, if you're trying to collect This Magazine is Haunted, you're catching it in two different er- points of the same decade, st- stemming out of two different magazines, you know? Like, it just becomes impossible. It's uh, almost like collecting contemporary Marvel. And I'll uh, hear, this is great. <laughs> exactly, I mean, forget it. You know, the numbering is useless on contemporary Marvel. Um, and then there was uh, Yellow Jacket Comics, which we talked about in the very beginning. This ran from 1944 to 1946, this would become Jack in the Box, which I don't know a dang thing about. I know they've got, they used to have two tacos for a dollar, but now it's two tacos <laughs> for a buck twenty nine. That was really on Tuesdays, right? Yeah, no, it's every day. Every oh, day. oh, hell yeah. 
And uh, I think they're actually made out of cat food, so that's a good thing. <laughs> that's racist. <laughs> well, I, I do know that you can eat them on Good Friday and not break the uh, no meat thing. So it's good. it's good. It's good enough for cats. It's good enough for me. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, now, uh, Dick Giordano, he's off in a position as editor in 1968 at uh, DC Comics uh, at the uh, suggestion of Steve Ditko. Uh, Dick brings uh, Denny O'Neill, Steve Skates, Joe Gill, Jim Aparo, and Pat Boyette with him. Um, actually, that... See. Uh, Gill and Boyette, they would go back to Charlton primarily uh, when uh, when Dick was ousted from his yeah. spot there, and Charlton would uh, roll on. Yep. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's that's our first part. Pretty much that that pretty much does it for the first part of Charlton. When Dick Giordano left, that ended the action hero experiment uh, and ended an era of Charlton, but it did not end Charlton, nor did it end their superhero comics, as we will talk about. Absolutely. In the, the next part coming next week. Yes. But uh, we also want to uh, give a, a, a little bit of press that we can to uh, a couple of projects that are going on uh, based on Charlton right now. There's a, a documentary being uh, being t- produced right now called Charlton Comics the Movie. Uh, you can check out the trailer at charltonmovie.com. It's a, it's a documentary on the history of the company. It has interviews and anecdotes by uh, some of the folks who were there. And uh, there's actually, a, a, they actually have a comic presence now, too. Uh, it's called Charlton Neo. And uh, you can see some of that stuff at uh, morttodd.com. M-O-R-T-T-O-D-D. Yeah, we'll put these links in the show notes. Yeah, and uh, I, I haven't checked out either of these things, but uh, I just thought that since it, it's, you know, it's going on now, Absolutely. why no, not I, mention it? It's, it's worth mentioning, and, and as you, you have here, it has, a lot of, it has all new work, uh, new stories, new pinups. Uh, and by some old Charlton mainstays like Steve Ditko, Paul Kupperberg, and John Byrne. But and you you might be saying John Byrne worked there, and we're and we're going to say we're going to tell you about that next episode. And then you might say, actually, you talked about that last episode, asshole. And you're right, we did. We did a whole. <laughs> and we're all right. And we're all all of us are right. But you will hear more about uh, you know Charlton next episode, and as they go through the 70s and the 80s into their eventual demise. But uh, if you want to write to us. And tell us all the things that we got wrong or left out or that we are uh, totally great or, you know, that you love our work. Then please give, drop us a line at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Reggie Reggie. And I'm at Ace Comics. And every week I tell you, and I'll tell you this week, you got to go to Chris is on infiniteearths.blogspot.com. That's Chris's personal blog that he reviews a new DC comic every single day. Uh, really well written. He did uh, the first Watchmen this week for his 200th yeah. uh, landmark issue, uh, episode. What do you call those things? Article? I don't know. Peace. Peace. That, 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 that does it, <laughs> I, I guess. I don't think they're good enough to be articles. I'll just call them a piece. Yeah, we'll call it, we'll call it his uh, essay. Whatever whatever yes. it is, uh, it's, it's a great job. You should go check it out and uh, go do whatever you got to do on that site. Go nuts in the comments and really harass him and freak him out. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. But I think that's it for us this week. Got anything else for him, Chris? Nope. Uh, just uh, we're gonna we're gonna trudge into the 1970s and uh, beyond next week. That's right. So get your platform shoes and your afros ready because we are gonna get very disco over here. We're gonna do the hustle. <laughs>
<laughs> so long, everybody. Make sure you keep it weird historically. See ya. In the new mall with a few bras in the shoe store. Cop the new gauze and jumped in the two-door. With the blue velour shirt open with the chain showing. Where she just going to not be range over with the waves blowing. Stay holding. Bitches in the back whispering. Now I'm listening. Bitch, this my car. Y'all fucking sitting in. Speak up. I dare y'all think I can't hear y'all. Any more talk. Y'all bitches gonna walk. What? They like, we just say you ain't fine. I ain't buying none, of course. Y'all bitches is horse. What I look like support? Me trick, man, listen. Yeah, I trick, trick your ass to think I'm tricking. Give you a stickin', then I'm skipping. All you getting is a hard dick, chick. After I spit, I want you quick at my apartment. Trifling, but did the right thing. Left for one dankman, hitchhiking. Hope the things get striked by lightning. Oh, singing. Singing.